as we continue to unpack the helmet of salvation and we're looking at the 82nd Psalm, before we continue with the 82nd Psalm, let me go back and remind you of the context. Paul is writing in the context of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, and chapter 6 of course is the concluding chapter of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1 is where he lays out this thing about the mighty power of God. So he, Paul says that he wants us to understand the mystery of his will, uh, which is his pleasure to put into, into effect in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when he brings everything together in one in Christ. And he says to that effect that he wishes that the believers would understand certain things. Number one, what is the hope? What is the hope of God's calling of the believer? Number two, what is God's glorious inheritance in the saints? Number three, what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and here's what He did, He seated Him at His right hand, now that's the position of the firstborn, which is inclusive of the right to judge, and He does so far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. This is, this is the language associated with judgments. This is the language of jurisprudence. Who has authority? What is the plenary authority? To what and to whom are all others in all the realms subject? So when we made up the idea that the helmet of salvation had to do with guarding your mindset against um, uh, foreign or uh, uh, ungodly precepts, I mean that that's a rational way of viewing it, but it has nothing to do with judging the enemy and judging all forms of challenge to the sovereignty of Christ. Look, Christ is seated far above all rule and authority and every title that may be given not only in the present age but in the age to come which means he is in the position of the ultimate judge. Overcoming the enemy is to put him under our feet. We talked about the military term pacification, which is to reduce his ability to resist and to reduce that ability to nothing, 
That's what this is about. It's not about saving people from a debauched or depraved mindset. That happens, that begins when He translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. But ultimately, that's not what the helmet of salvation refers to. Salvation is not that. Salvation is the superiority of the mindset of the kingdom and those in the kingdom over the kingdom of darkness and the inherent judgment that flows out of that to the enemy, to render him powerless in every circumstance, not only in our lives but in the lives of others whose lives ours influence. That's what it's talking about. But any good Baptist will want to stop at salvation as going to heaven when you die. No, the helmet of salvation is a crown of majesty decreeing who is, what is right and what is not and who stands on the right and who does not, who stands on, on the side that is correct as opposed to left wing, right wing. <laughs> Pardon me, I'm amazed at how language has been co-opted and compromised and how people's emotions have become so, so frayed that if you use the term right, you have to be conscious of the fact that there are people thinking, uh, well, you're in favor of the right wing. Uh, or if you use the term left, I suppose that it would affect those on the right that way. No, that's nonsense. This is, I'm not in that mindset, not talking about that mindset. And frankly, if you are and are confused by it, you need to do a reality check because you're not in reality. The world is not divided into right wing and left wing. Right still means the rectitude of being accurately aligned to divine standards. And it's not as compared to left, it's as compared to wrong. Wrong. All right, let me, let me go on. He raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in the present age but in the age that is to come. Newsflash. When we go back to Ephesians 6 where he's talking about the armor of God, he tells us the same thing, that we are enthroned in the heavenly realms in Christ, far above all rule and authority, principalities, powers, the darkness of this age. To what end are we enthroned? If you're sitting on the throne, what is the throne at that juncture. It's the symbol of divine authority. It's not just a seat you've acceded to. If you're seated on the throne, you're seated in the seat of judgment. 
The throne is always and has always been about judgment. How plain can I make this? It's not a reward for obeying Christ as in the simplistic gospel that has been preached. The truth of the matter is we're seated on the throne while we are still in this earth. We're seated in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus who sits upon His Father's throne. To do what? Is it just where He eats curds and whey? I mean, I'm astonished at how little thought we give to the language of Scripture, what it means. If it's speaking about Him in heaven, seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name or title, that's the seat of judgment to hold all things accountable to the divine standards of divine rectitude, of who God is. There's not a standard that judges God. God is the standard. There's no standard that can judge God in as much as He's the penultimate of beings. His nature and His character are the standard by which everything is or exists and therefore inevitably His presence judges everything. He put the throne in creation to signify the authority we have when we are in the Father having been placed in the Son inevitably, inevitably, it's about judgment. All right, now, far above all rule, authority, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet. What is the language suggesting? more than what it's suggesting. What is the language depicting? When something is put under your feet, when someone is put under your feet, he's not referring to a rug or a carpet or even a footstool. He's talking about your sovereign right, the foot on the head principle to hold that thing accountable because you've been empowered to do so. He put, God put all things under the feet of Christ and gave Him to be head, ruler, that's why this is the kephale, the helmet of salvation, the thing that surrounds the head is literally what it means gave Him to be head over all things, to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all things in every way. 
That considered, who do we ultimately judge? Who do we ultimately judge? We judge all the angels who rebelled against God. Ultimately, we judge them. Do you not know? Have you forgotten? Have you never known that it is your destiny in Christ to judge angels? Now, you don't begin by judging angels, you begin by judging man. And God is very particular about the way in which you judge within the scope of judgments that you've been given at any point in time. So Psalm 82, back to Psalm 82, let's see what God has to say about the Elohim, the magistrates who judge unrighteously, with the understanding that the term gods, referencing the word Elohim, is about judging and judges and magist- which is the term magistrates. Understanding that, let's read the psalm, see if it makes sense, see if now you can understand who gods are and in what capacity is the term used to refer to magistrates. This isn't about some angelic function, it is not to angels, it is, I repeat, it is not to angels. Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 1 says this, it is not to angels that God has committed the judgment or rule of the age to come, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Because you loved righteousness and hated wickedness, the God, your God, has set you above your fellows and anointed you with the oil of joy. This is an echo of the second psalm that says God gave to Christ a people out of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, gave Him the ends of the earth for His possession. So judgment is the inevitable component of being seated on the throne and being seated in Christ. So we have to learn how to judge. So he goes on now, and I'll read quickly through the second psalm, starting over. God stands in the congregation of the mighty and He judges amongst the gods. So Elohim, the supreme judge, stands in the congregation of the judges and He judges the judges. Now why is there need to judge the judges? Because they're corrupt. How long will you judge unjustly? So there you go, it's about judging. What is the nature of unjust judgments for which they're being both accused and reprimanded? You show partiality 
to the wicked. Selah. Pause and reflect that you've been showing partiality to the wicked. If you read the book of Ezekiel and the prophecies of Ezekiel against the rulers of Israel, he delineates the vision of seeing how they in the inner sanctums of the temple would meet to devise plans for benefiting themselves at the expense of the truth. And it's the prelude to the rest of the nation taken away, being taken away into Babylonian captivity. It, it, it was rife in Israel. So he calls them after requiring them to pause, he says, this is what you should have been doing. Rather than showing partiality to the wicked and generally judging unjustly, you ought to have been defending the poor and the fatherless. That too is a judicial function or a juridical function. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Continuing the theme of judgments and justice. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Obviously the wicked are in a more powerful position and capable of oppressing the poor and the needy. God speaks almost as in an aside. It's as though God is muttering under His breath and speaking of his contempt for the judges who know so little about divine standards. He said, they do not know nor do they understand. They don't know me. They're in positions of representation but they don't know me. How do you hope to represent someone you don't know? How would you know that they don't know you? because your standards are not the bases of their judgments. They do not know nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are unstable. When those who are supposed to represent the Lord are compromised, in the way that they are self-serving and deceitful, God says, you don't know me. You don't understand. Your condition is one of walking around in darkness. You're not in fellowship with the light. Your condition is internally dark. And when you do that, there are no systems of the earth, no basis upon which society sits that is stable. When I read this the other day, I was thinking about how the nation of the United States has become so shaky so 
unstable. The next thing that comes has an amplified effect beyond the thing itself. And when I thought about it, I trace that instability right back to this army, this multitude of compromised preachers, leaders, and the people of God in general. There used to be a time when there was respect for what the church stood for. Today, a good way to be ridiculed and laughed at and made into a public spectacle is to claim publicly that you believe in Christ because they associate a belief in Christ with being unstable, prejudicial, and incapable of speaking plainly on any subject. Now, it's not a belief in Christ that makes people unstable, of course not. Christ is the foundation of all things stable. It's the compromised view that has come to be the norm of those who claim that they are representing Christ. Now they're being viewed as fools and vagabonds. That's the condition that exists now. I have said from the beginning of this years ago, when I saw the church going into politics, I said back then it's a matter of record because I haven't said it just once, I've said it many times in recordings, that at the end of the day, the greatest casualty of the church's devolution into politics will be the loss of the evangelical gospel. Now, it's no great loss, I will admit, because it was never the gospel. It was a cobbled together version of, of religion and religious thought. But there is a real gospel, it's the gospel of the kingdom. I wish to correct Mr. Graham for preaching a gospel of going to heaven when you die as the goal as the emphasis of his ministry and his message. It was never that, not according to the scriptures. It was always, and this gospel of the kingdom. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I don't care which preacher or who advocated a different view such as the gospel of going to heaven when you die, as the gospel of salvation. The gospel of the kingdom is how God translates you from one kingdom into another, under the rule of a different king, from the, being under the rule of Satan to being under the rule of Christ. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And what we're talking about now 
is how there's a transformation in your judgments to reflect that you're no longer compromised by being in the kingdom of darkness so that when Satan comes he finds nothing in you. This 82nd Psalm is the the clearest rebuke that God has for leaders whether in Israel or in His kingdom, Israel in the ancient times, in the kingdom today or in, in the body of Christ today who have abandoned the highest state of representing the standard of divine rectitude manifested in creation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for the self-serving gospel of personal enrichment. So here's how he ends it. God says, all the foundations of the earth are unstable on account of that. And he said, I say you are the Elohim and all of you are the children of the Most High. You were received into the family of God. And, but instead of growing up in that, you've devolved into money changers, much like the predecessors in the temple in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you're children of the Most High. Now that would preclude any angel because God has never called an angel His son. But here's what will happen to you, you'll die like men, which is to say you'll fall from that highest state in disgrace like one of the princes. Who might that be, you think? Ha-Setan was once the light amongst the angels. His name, Lucifer, indicates the light bearer. He fell, and Scripture refers to this repeatedly, being lifted up in pride, warning against pride, the sin of pride, that lest you be lifted up in pride and you fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, there is no doubt as to what he's talking about. And then it ends on a note of restoration. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all things. Now who is this addressed to? Well, here it is in the second psalm. God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The helmet of salvation is the indication of a crown associated with majesty, 
for the purpose of establishing righteous judgments in the earth. And when you do, even the enemy comes before you in the courts of your designated influence and you get to judge him even now and judge his ways because the Son of God is revealed in you. When Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with Him in glory, the Scripture says. When He appears in you, you are clothed with Him and His appearing brings everything into judgment. You will judge angels, not sometime in the future, but when you are mature enough to have been accorded the status of being a, the divine standard incarnate because the Son of God was revealed in this life to destroy the works of the devil. He is revealed in you for this purpose. When you have something under your feet, when you have someone under your feet, he is incapable of asserting any authority over you. So Paul in his final note to the Romans said, Be excellent at what is good and be innocent of evil, and the God of peace shall soon crush Satan underneath your feet." Although that is true with that portion of the armor of God that has to do with your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, it is equally true when you are engaged in the juridical function of judging. Your helmet of salvation is the indication of your jurisdiction as a judge, the right to judge over matters as to whether or not they are correct according to divine standards, and the right to judge persons in conjunction with that standard. That is why you cannot be corrupt at all, as the 82nd Psalm indicates of certain judges in Israel, that's why God rebukes them because His showing in righteousness and in righteous judgments cannot be compromised. And Sam Solon will continue with the armor of God when we resume these broadcasts. Until then, I'll see you. Bye-bye.